Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora everyone and welcome on to the show. This week we're going to be speaking with Glenn Dodson. Now, I went over to his house just three or four days before he was due to have surgery to remove part of his tongue, and that was because cancer had been found there. So we have quite an in-depth conversation about that. But we also have a great conversation about his career and his current work with the Salvation Army and helping people coming straight out of prison and reintegrating back into society. I know you're going to enjoy it, and if you do, you might want to check out some of the other episodes in the back catalog. Now let's get into this conversation with Glenn. It's a real pleasure to welcome Glenn Dodson, who's the director of Emergency Housing in Christchurch for the Salvation Army. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. Problem. Um, You've actually been on my list for quite a while now because I know you're doing some great work Mm -hmm. in Addington in particular. That's right. And uh, I've wanted to have you on to hear a bit about your life story and things. Mm -hmm. Um, But as well as that, it's been accelerated to now we're we're sitting here on a Sunday evening doing this. And the reason is that this coming Wednesday, you're going in for some surgery, right? That's correct. Yep. Um, So I wanted to get this recording done now um, because I think it's important to hear your voice um, as it is today. Mm -hmm. So we're going to talk about that as well, that diagnosis and things um, later on in the episode. But to start with, what I like to do is ask people, where are you from? I'm from uh, Blenheim, uh, a little town outside of Blenheim called Spring Creek. Um, as you travel between um, Blenheim and Pitton on the way to the ferry, you'll go through this little town called Spring Creek, and uh, it's been my hometown for my family uh, since the 1850s. Wow. And um, that uh, there is still family land there, and uh, a number of the family members are still farming in that area. Wow. Do you know much about the people who originally settled there? Yes. Yep. Um, they uh, travelled out uh, from England and um, arrived eventually um, into Nelson, uh, like many did around that sort of 1840s, 1850s period. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, some parts of the family ended up settling in Nelson and others made the travel across to new land that was being settled uh, outside in, in and around Blenheim itself. At that time, you know, that was the first time that the land had been broken um, and allowed to be used for farming um, and it was um, a very adventurous um, pioneering time um, and most of the family members have remained uh, in, in and around that area and are still farming uh, uh, small plots still today. Most of that's changed uh, since the 1980s when the, um, the grapes came in, in and around Blenheim and uh, most of the old family farms have been sold off um, over the years and as each generations come through uh, more and more lands ended up with grapes on it and ended up being sold so yeah so not much land left now um, probably a few hundred acres um, between the different families um, but still still there and that's that's my hometown that's um, that's where I was raised and born and um, eventually ended up in Christchurch. Wow and so what is it like um, growing up with a legacy of knowing that you know your I guess your great great grandparents or whoever had mm. arrived like mm. as as a, a place of being? Um, 
It has been strange because we've probably been the first generation that hasn't been automatically assumed that you were going to end up farming as well. Mm. Um, And very early on, I think my parents indicated that this wasn't going to be an option for us. And uh, essentially, we were encouraged to carry on with our education. But it it still feels like that's where my roots are. If I'm talking about home, that's that's where it is. Um, And unfortunately, you know, it's it's my parents are still there and are the members of the family and. Uh, yeah, it's 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 the closest thing I've got when I've gone through and done my studies. When Maori talk about having a home, a base, um, um, a part to come back to, that to me is where my power is. It's where I, I've I feel my roots are. I feel that's uh, it's where I've lived for such a long time. It's where many of the generations have lived for so long. Mm. Um, but it is uh, interesting that here we are. My kids coming through now, and all of them have got very strong connections back to farming. And interesting that they haven't lived there, and they haven't, in a sense, been farming. We live on a, a lifestyle block, but they've they're all coming back to those roots. So it's hmm. what does that mean? You know, that even though they've been not associated with it themselves, that they actually still see a very strong link. And, and is that a genetic thing? I'm not sure, but right. it's certainly Maybe it just certainly jumped over you as a generation yes, into your kids. Yes. Yep. Interesting. Yep. Mm. You mentioned that your 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 parents or your father, I think, um, had said quite early on that farming wasn't going to be for you. Mm. What what was the background there? Why did they realize that? Even as I was coming through school in the 1980s, you know, um, the farms were starting to be split up. Even then, okay. Um, and we thought there were astronomical pricing being paid for acres of land, mm-hmm. um, land that had been heavily used for for cropping, um, very good producing land, um, very market gardening type of land, mm-hmm. and uh, so it was it was um, a sense that th- that journey was changing even in the 1980s, and certainly my parents sort of saw that in the writing on the wall that was going to come, hmm. um, and they recognised that actually our options were to carry on with our education and, and go our own pathway, hmm. um, and in doing so let that let that go and uh, we've probably been early in that journey but I know a lot of other families now where their kids have gone down the same pathway and have left the area in a sense left that legacy passing from generation to generation which was very strong around that area even when as I was growing up a lot Mm. of families who have been there from a similar length of time Mm. from that 19... Well that's the thing that strikes me is that you know the farm you know that's been in the family for generations Mm. like for the father to say to the son, actually, you should mm. go get an education. Don't take over for me. Mm. That's quite a big call, mm. isn't yep. it? Yeah. And it happened across all my cousins at the time as well. Mm. Um, and in doing so, they've all spread to the wind and, and left the area. A lot of them have stayed connected in some way or another to farming, but um, it certainly don't have those roots in mm. this gen- next generation have remained in that area. So, yeah, our family, um, being there a long time, will no longer be there. Mm. And that's a passing of those those times, and I think we're probably seeing the same thing happening amongst uh, dairy farming as as well. You mm. know, farming as a as, as a place for families to remain linked to the area is is becoming more and more difficult, mm. and um, in doing so, uh, the chances for families to pass on that legacy is is probably dying mm. as, as as those family farms come up for sale and the next generation can't afford to buy them. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's that's probably true. Mm. Well, that's why I love about this podcast is we hear such different perspectives mm. and backgrounds and so your story is actually a fascinating one already because mm. look at the changing of the generations yes. that that they'd been there for generations mm. and then 
you've gone off with this with the blessing of your parents mm. to do different things. Yep. Can you just describe a little bit about yourself as a child? Like, did you enjoy? I guess you're on the farm, right? Mm. You're, are you helping out and active outside, or what? What sort of a child were you? Um, as we were growing up, yes, um, I remember very early on that farming was a was a, an active part of our household. Um, However, farming is romantic in the sense of, you know, lovely little lambs running around, you know, cows being born and hay being made. And But actually the reality is long, long days, not always making that much money. Mm-hmm. Um, very early on, I can remember my dad um, struggling very much with the physicality of farming, um, coming in with very sore and uh, crippling at times back problems. Suffered when he was a kid, you know, you remember falling off a haystack when he was probably in his early teens, um, woke up after being unconscious um, and probably didn't get a lot of treatment at the time. Mm. And here he was, as I was coming up through school and as a teenager, I remember him struggling very much with the physicality of farming. A lot of long days on a tractor, long days, um, dawn to dusk, struggling to ensure that there was enough income. Um, eventually he actually stopped farming and uh, there was a health condition he had at the time and uh, eventually we uh, uh, we were on the farm but we didn't farm it and I suppose that was my first insight of what was to become my career, uh, what it was like to go from um, being a family that was self-sufficient and able to look after ourselves to a family that actually became uh, reliant at the time uh, upon benefits mm. um, as he became sicker and a lot of that was to do with his physical health and uh, and as we uh, struggled to continue to be where we were um, that struggle of finances that struggle of ensuring we had enough um, food on the table and we could pay the bills and um, and hang on to the land that we had um, at the same time not farming it. Mm. So it was just that uh, that became an insight to what was to become my career. Wow. Mm. So what age were you around that time? Um, like, I was um, years probably, or? yeah. So yeah. I was. Uh, I remember I was doing um, school cert, you know, UE years. Those were the, the most uh, difficult right. um, when those issues became uh, quite, uh, quite big. It, but it had been coming for quite a while, you know, as a household... Um, they, those struggles have been there for a little while mm-hmm. and uh, it, it really came to a peak uh, in those years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what was it like for you as a, as a teenager then to see your father, um, I, I guess, going through this transition for him that probably he didn't want at that time um, from running the farm and having done that all his life, mm-hmm. you know, taking over from his father, presumably. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, what was that like for you as well uh, to in terms of impact on your identity and and who you were at that stage? Uh, I think at the time, uh, the the sense of loss of identity, um, that even though we still lived rurally, we still lived amongst the, our peers, uh, amongst the extended far now that we had there, mm-hmm. um, we were the part of the family that no longer were farming, um, and we were the family that were struggling, um, and we were, in a sense, um, no longer participating in the local activities, the AMP shows, or the sense of being in that farming community that we had been, that I remember when I was at primary school mm-hmm. and early college, and in a sense of having to let go of that identity and, and an, an understanding of who we now were, um, in a sense of... Uh, 
no longer having a part. We're living in the rural area, but no longer having a part so much as we had been, as, mm. as I can remember, as, as a little kid, um, and ensuring that um, actually we were going to survive. So at the time, it just felt like it was just part of life. Um, but looking back on it now, you recognise that um, I still strongly identify with that farming, those farming roots. I recognise that actually it still came with a lot of struggle as well. Yeah, right. Mm. So you mentioned um, education was a high value. You know, your parents had wanted you to study to be able to do something beyond farming. Um, did you have a sense of what it was that you wanted to get into or, or take further? Um, initially, it was teaching. Um, came to so when I came through school, we we all went to local schools, um, and when we came through school, the intent was to end up um, coming to Christchurch mm-hmm. um, and end up going to university. Um, but at the time, uh, it was around primary school teaching. Um, I had a sense of um, engaging and being able to do those things. My my mother was a teacher, mm. um, and it was sort of like it was a well. This could be a pathway to go down. Um, I did did think at different times I might have ended up here at Lincoln University. I, I looked at a, a number of options along those lines at the time, around you know valuation and property management and stuff like that mm-hmm. um, to do with the farming side. But it, it sort of didn't eventuate at that at that moment. Um, and so I eventually ended up down here in Christchurch to go to Teachers College. Hmm. Right. And um, so what happened next? Um, great to come to Christchurch. Fantastic little little kid coming from the uh, rural areas around Blenheim. Um, look, I've visited Christchurch over the years, but never lived here. Um, so for me, it was freedom. Um, like most people going to university and uh, leaving home and escaping from all that. Um, came to Christchurch... Um, fortunate enough to stay in the halls of residence here and uh, was able to, to attend Teachers College and also dabble a little bit at university at the same time. Um, and between those two things, the idea was that you carried on and earned a degree. Um, got into the third year and in the third year you were allowed to go to university for the whole year. And that was a little bit of my undoing. Um, <laughs> having been to university for the year, I really enjoyed it. And going back to Teachers College for the fourth year, which would have been my final year, I only lasted for about two weeks. Uh, they, they sent you into the classroom in those first two weeks back to do your practical. And I got back into the classroom and I thought, oh, I'm not sure I like kids that much. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I actually lasted the two weeks and I said, nah. That's not me. I want to go back to uni. Yeah. Um, was there a moment that you remember that happening, like walking walking in or out of the school and thinking, mm. ah, this isn't going to work? I look back on it now, I think it was a silly way in which they had the program set up um, to send us straight back into the classroom within, you know, after having a year away. Mm-hmm. Um, shouldn't have been the way they did it. But anyway, because it certainly, it, I just sat there and thought, actually, I don't. I enjoyed the opportunity and the freedom that the university gave me that, that year away right. um, and the sense of actually doing my own learning and, and exploring my own things going forward and uh, and it felt like quite constraining going back into the primary school mm. and uh, yeah I remember one day thinking actually I got to the end of the day and I thought oh gosh that was a long day <laughs> and um, and the kids were being stroppy and I was I didn't have my you know I didn't have my mind on it and things hadn't gone well and it was sort of the end of the day and I thought no that's it and I had opportunity, you know, because uh, Teachers College started early, um, university hadn't opened yet. So basically I could, uh, 
the next day re-enroll back into what I wanted to do. Oh, I see. Yeah. Right. So it was that quick. It was that quick. <laughs> yeah. And did you know what you wanted to do? Which, like, had there been subjects that really popped out to you um, during that year? Or? Look, I'm not a fantastic student, although I've gone on to study a whole lot of different things um, over the years. In fact, I'm still studying now. And uh, But at the time, I really struggled to get through my, my degree. I obviously, at that point, thought it was all going to be around teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'd done a whole lot of subjects to do with teaching and education and educational theories and psychology of schools and all this sort of stuff. And when I stepped back and thought, well, actually, I'm not going to now perhaps use all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do I do next? And, and really, my first degree was was a struggle to actually just try and get through it Mm. Um, and essentially was a dabbling at all sorts of things just to in the end pass Um, (laughs) and that sounds terrible now but actually it was that was the reality I really didn't know what I was going to do next but I knew I had to finish this degree because I was sort of like halfway through it Mm -hmm. Um, and and I was able to cross credit the papers over the education papers and things I'd done and and bring it to to a Bachelor of Arts and, and carry on do geography and lots of other things and and just try and get through it all. Mm-hmm. And that's what I did in the end. Yeah. yeah. But mm. at that point, you didn't have a clear career path in no. mind. It was just, I enjoy this thing called yes. study. That's I want to do a bit more. Yeah. I want to yeah. do it more. And I, was, I wanted to pass and I'm going to finish it. Yeah. Um, it wasn't actually until I'd finished the degree and someone said, actually, have you thought about doing social work? All right. And um, that's where my pathway moved. Hmm. And um, and at that time, you didn't do a degree in social work. You did a general degree and you went on and did a um, what would have been a graduate diploma. And, uh, and I did that um, over the next four years. I did that part-time. Oh. And uh, that opened a whole new doorway and really started to cement my future. Right. Mm. Interesting. So were you working at the same time as, yep. as doing that? or So at that particular moment, I had an opportunity to get involved. Um, it was my first dabble in getting involved in mental health. Hmm. And um, I was going, I just started to attend a local church and uh, they were particularly strong in their community development. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that just opened probably six months before I arrived um, was a very small community residential uh, house. Um, and it, it became part of a, a service called Stepping Stone Trust. And um, at that time, I think it had five beds and had enough money to pay one staff member, and the rest of us were basically doing it for free. Right. And I, somebody asked and said, look, actually, there's this opportunity going on down there. Would you like to go and volunteer? Mm-hmm. Uh, I had no idea what I was walking into, and I thought, oh, yeah, I'll be there for a few weeks. Um, I ended up staying there um, for 25 years. Wow. Mm. That's quite a long time when you it put is it a long that way. Time. <laughs> <laughs> it's a quarter of a century. It is a long time. Yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah. So um, just in terms of the origins of Stepping Stone and, and what was the need that the the people who founded it were trying to address? You mentioned it was actually a house, was it? Mm. Or a residential? So this was 1990. Okay. Um, and at that time, there had been a bit of a push on here in Christchurch as as the local Sunnyside Hospital was called at that time. The psychiatric hospital was starting to move towards community as an option. Mm-hmm. Um, and small pockets of NGOs, non-government organisations, were starting to evolve. Mm. And a few of the local churches, and this one was Sprayden Baptist Church, mm-hmm. um, had uh, had some interest in this area. They were physically actually quite close to the um, Sunnyside Hospital at the time mm-hmm. um, and had had long 
association between the hospital and the church. Mm-hmm. And there was a, a couple of characters there at the time uh, who, who who saw this as an opportunity to serve. Mm-hmm. And um, had, there was a, a little drop-in centre there down there on Lincoln Road called New Harvest Trust. And a character there called Graham Reed, um, who had been evolving community work in that area around that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, this small drop-in was being visited a lot by people from the hospital, which was probably you know, 500 metres further along the road. And uh, and they saw a need at that point, actually, to, to evolve and, and develop a house. Um, this was before the days of funding. Um, and in essence, the church said, look, actually, you've got our blessing. Um, look, we really encourage you to try these things out and to get on with it. Um, not a lot of money around, but, but we'll, we'll, we'll give you lots of blessing. Um, and, um, <laughs> lots of moral support. Moral support, yeah, <laughs> and, and volunteers perhaps who could become involved. But mm-hmm. essentially, the trust started from pretty much nothing. And, right. uh, and, and I arrived sort of six months down the track and... Um, was part of that first wave of volunteers who, who were part of a staffing uh, needed staffing twenty four hours a day, even with five or six people. Right. Um. And and there was staff during the day that were paid, and then everybody else who was on after hours, yeah. um, basically filled the roster, um, and were part of that process of mm. letting this getting this thing involved. Mm. Yeah. In terms of the five or six people who were there, um, what sort of things had they come through in their lives that meant that they needed this help? Mm. This, this particular service had had a focus around young adults. So most of the people at that time coming into that service would have been, you know, probably in their early 20s, mm-hmm. would have had uh, probably a reasonable uh, mental health history um, and were requiring, had probably been admitted into hospital, mm-hmm. um, had probably spent at that particular time weeks or months living in hospital and then needing a transition place to move back into community. Right. There wasn't many options around at that time in Christchurch. There's probably another service, Richmond Fellowship, or Richmond New Zealand, as they became known. Mm-hmm. An English operator was out here doing a small amount of work in this area, but yeah, so there was, was probably two or three players. Uh, Comcare Trust was another one that's well known here in Christchurch now, mm-hmm. um, who, who evolved about the same period of time. Mm. And um, so, yeah, these were... Young adults needing to um, transition out of hospital into community probably need somewhere to be for 6, 12, 18 months Mm -hmm. and to relearn skills or build up skills to transition into flatting life or getting a job or having um, more security with their finances or re-establishing links to family. Mm. Um, So uh, rather than going straight from the hospital into... Mm a flat or something, there's this transitional stage of, and and I guess giving some training and encouragement Mm. and and helping them with that. And and, and people reasonably unwell and needed support with their medications and support with their mental health issues. Mm -hmm. Um, As a volunteer, my expectation was to turn up at night time, arrive there about 10 o'clock at night and um, and sleep over, as they were called it then. I just hoped nobody would knock on my door because I had no idea what I was going to do. Um, <laughs> but essentially, we stayed there overnight, and um, and at eight o'clock, nine o'clock the next morning, um, we were relieved of our duties and went on in our day. Right. Um, and essentially, it was to ensure that the house didn't burn down, or nobody did anything silly, or that I could call somebody if it looked like it was um, getting out of control. But um, most of the time, it was actually pretty quiet. Mm. You know, by the time I got there at night time, most people had gone to bed, and uh, and essentially, I was there just minding and ensuring that actually everyone was going to be safe for the whole night. Yeah, yeah. and that was my very very early start. 
Yeah. Mm. Oh, that's great. And Stepping Stone is continuing today, right? Yes. It's grown quite a lot. Maybe yep. you can just talk a little bit about the next 25 years and, so, and um, compress it into what it's become or what it became. Okay. I know you're no longer there. Yeah. But, you know. So I finished at, at Stepping Stone Trust uh, in 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, I had... Uh, I was still doing when I first started there in 1990. I was I just started my social work. Um, I was able to uh, build up some experience, um, get a sense of future in social work and particularly around mental health. Mm-hmm. Uh, I journeyed with another couple of trusts around what they were doing at the time, built up some more experience, came back to Stepping Stone again, and um, I, I finished my studies. Um, in, in 1994 and at that point I was offered a social work role and then assistant manager role and then 1996 I took over the reins off the trust and as their, as their manager and then director and then CEO and journeyed with the trust from those five, six beds that I was when I started and when I finished I think we had 550 persons in the service on any particular night. Wow. Um, they weren't all beds but they were people who were being supported by that trust uh, to ensure that they were able to maintain their independence in the community, and and mostly that was uh, within their own home. Mm. So the idea eventually over time was not to create more and more spaces that we had, but to support people to maintain their independence in their own place. Mm. Um, and that support, what sort of things did that involve? That, like obviously, I guess visits to yep. the people where mm-hmm. they were and, and checking up. And so by the time I, I finished, we probably had about 80 beds that we were providing, okay. a range of residential services for youth, um, you know, as young as 14-year-olds, um, for adults as uh, an evolution of where we started, mm-hmm. um, and for older persons. So these were uh, individuals who had perhaps lived in hospital care for decades and were no longer... Um, needing to stay in hospital but actually could go independent Mm -hmm. Um, they were needing a lot of support Um, we had a lot of respite beds so again providing a short stay option instead of hospital um, where people could come in for periods of days and and then exit and go back home again Um, and then considerable amount of support for people um, probably 300 people or 400 people were being supported in their own homes. And again, that was a lot of staff travelling in and around the city, in and around Canterbury itself, and um, supporting them to maintain independence. And, and in doing so, you know, ensuring that their bills were being paid, ensuring they had food on the table, ensuring that the proper care was being provided, mm-hmm. and uh, encouraging the DHB staff to, to come more often if required. Um, uh, we did a lot of medication Care, so of getting out, making sure people were having the medications on time. Um, yeah, so the services were wide um, and varied and mm. had evolved a lot over that time. And that it was a reflection of the funding that became available mm. into community care over those decades um, and considerable push uh, by government and by the DHBs to move away from just focusing on hospitals to ensuring that actually people got the best care in the community. Mm. Mm. Um, and that NGO, that um, that Stepping Stone Trust still, still exists today and it's uh, carried on and still strongly associated with Sprayden Baptist, which has now become Southwest Baptist, um, still has its home base there. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I left, I think we were employing 180, 190 staff mm. um, and a lot of social workers, nurses, uh, counsellors, OT, it was a a whole gamut of different occupation groups um, and were able to provide 
the service range of services within mm. a community setting. It must have been quite fascinating to be involved right at the beginning, and <clears throat> you know, five or six beds, and mm. then kind of watch it grow yep. over the over the coming years. Yep. I'm just curious in terms of the people that you got in, maybe as volunteers or just starting working in that particular sector. What sort of training would you give to them? Um, and in particular, I'm thinking about um, the skills of relating with other people. Mm. When I started. I, I think I might have had 10 minutes of orientation. Mm-hmm. Um, here's the door and here's the keys and <laughs> here's the jug and, and this is where you go to bed. Um, look, at, at those in those early 90s, there wasn't a lot of people, um, maybe some nurses and social workers were coming out of the DHB and, and, and transferring over, but it was pretty risky for them to do that. Mm. Um, there wasn't a lot of people around with much training. Mm. Um and certainly for me, I was fortunate having already started my social work to carry on in that journey and build up the skills. Um, I very quickly moved into management. So again, that probably uh, was where my best skill was. Mm-hmm. Uh, quite an entrepreneur by 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 development and like to see things evolving and developing and looking for new opportunities. Uh, I was fortunate to be able to use that skill base within a community uh, Christian setting, um, and to allow a, a very small trust to to take um, you know, steps at the time, um, be bold and, and put their hand up for stuff that was on offer, um, and and also as we became more viable financially, we were able to then go out and actually buy in school, and to encourage nurses and social workers and and train and trained counsellors and things to come on board, mm. be paid appropriately, um, and allow them to continue to get better training uh, in the whole area of mental health and, and, and addictions. Um, and that really you know, supported the whole trust to keep mm. evolving. So in fact, we, by the time I finished, we looked not the same as the DHB, but actually we had skills and capabilities, knowledge and experience of equal par. And uh, that gave the trust a very high um, level of uh, respect within the DHB. Um, it gave me opportunity to speak in at very high senior level of the DHB as far as their leadership for mental health services were concerned, mm-hmm. uh, to represent the NGO sector right across the country in a whole variety of different ways, um, and, and, and to speak into the DHB in its bigger form rather than just even around mental health. So mm. uh, it, it was a very privileged opportunity uh, from a small player based here just locally and from a church-based operator to get that level of respect and, mm. and acknowledgement. Um, mm. and yeah, it was it was quite a journey and uh, it was quite uh, a big ask for me to step away from it too. Mm. Um, well, I'd love to talk about that, but just before we do, it strikes me that one of the things with mental health is about listening to people. And I guess that would be one of the key skills for the counsellors, wouldn't it, to, to understand people's mm. journeys. How did you get to where you are? and then to view them holistically. Because I think part of our modern culture, it's so there's so much noise out there, there's so much mm. going on that we're not, we're not really that great at listening to people. Mm. Would, that, would that echo something that you saw as well? Or? If we dug back um, a general rule of thumb for those who are coming to the services there, mm-hmm. look, we were... We were at the more acute end of the scale uh, mm-hmm. of people's needs. So this, again, reflecting upon a population that had probably had significant mental health involvement from the DHBs mm-hmm. or from their GP. Um, so acknowledging that this was a group that's 
would be in that sort of top 3% of population which would have significant mental health uh, need. Mm. Um, Generally, if you dug down to why, um, there was always a sense of trauma somewhere, Mm -hmm. whatever form that came in. Um, And and often the individual had become, um, you know, caught up in that trauma and it continued to um, journey with them through their life and often there wasn't always enough time perhaps enough resource perhaps enough knowledge or capability to actually dig down into that trauma mm-hmm. um, and to respond to it and to give a person an opportunity to heal from that right um, we certainly tried and we certainly attempted to give the person the most uh, best opportunity to actually step forward mm-hmm. um, but you recognised that that was a, a significant part of their life and, in a sense, something they carried with them. Mm. Um, and as a service, look, sometimes we never had enough time. Um, we were contracted for a few days to intervene, perhaps a few weeks, but you always recognised that was years in the making and probably years in the healing. Mm. Um, and certainly as an organisation, we were very strong in um, encouraging healing, encouraging people to have hope, encouraging people to have a sense of future, um, and not just to be labelled by this mental illness, this thing that that become um, such a commanding part of their life. It didn't need to be the only thing in their life. Mm. Um, and certainly we looked at ways to encourage people to step out and try things or go back to things that they knew they could do, but perhaps they'd walked away from. And so it's 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 one of those worlds where, um, yeah, particularly at that top end, when people have had trauma and it's been a long time coming, it's... It's a lot of work to undo. Mm. Mm. And it sounds like it's a lot to journey with them (laughs) rather than Mm. um, thinking there'll be a quick Mm. fix as well. Yeah, And I think we we looked and said, look, the medication's really good. Um, We never said no to that. It was was essential to ensure that we had good DHB support, Mm -hmm. um, that clinicians there were able to provide things that we couldn't do. We didn't have our own medical team in the sense of doctors or, or psychiatrists. Uh, but certainly we could do the rest, um, which meant if, if those things had been supported, uh, we could come in alongside and do some of the other social stuff um, and and give some sense of purpose and journey and future for people. Mm. Mm. And at the same time as all this is happening, um, I know you've got some children. So mm. was was home life busy as well with kids and, and was that all happening around it this time? Yep. Um, I was fortunate to meet my future wife while I was at Stepping Stones. In fact, she was my boss at the time. Um, and so we ended up um, um, linking up and uh, eventually um, we got married and um, and I took over a job. Ooh. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so that was the start of our family journey. Right. And um, and as, as Glennis uh, stepped away from her... Uh, time as manager I stepped into that role mm-hmm. um, and we were fortunate to be able to balance life she's a, a very well-trained nurse and she carried on in journeys of working with the DHBs and, and, and now in primary health um, and we were able to uh, have children along the way mm-hmm. and uh, so we were fortunate to have three um, three children and uh, they're all two of them are still at home mm-hmm. and one of them's journeyed out on their own um, but yeah so it's been uh, exciting to see them develop and they've developed in a household which at times has been very busy Mm -hmm. and probably at times too stressed parents um 
who were you know out there at the coalface of in health, mm. um, but at the same time they've also seen us through our great moments when things have gone really well, mm. um, and uh, that they've been good supporters of both of us over the years. Mm. How do you? Because um, that area that you're dealing with, uh, mental health, like there must be. You've, you've already said there's lots of trauma and there's lots of people who've been hurt. How how do you how are you able to separate what other people are going through from your own personal life in terms of not taking on board all of the stress and all the things that you know are affecting the five hundred people or whatever? Yeah, I suppose over the the many years I've been involved in this, um, look. I've been in that more business side of the equation. Mm -hmm. Look, I got involved in situations which were pretty traumatic, um, which were life and death situations where people had done something or were going to do something more threatening. Look, I was involved in those scenarios a lot over those years Mm -hmm. and still are. Um, As opposed to a day-to-day clinician. Um, So even though I am skilled in that as well and – but my roles over all that time have been about pulling resources together, uh, giving people a place to operate from, um, finances, um, buildings, uh, equipment, um, skills, training, um, mm-hmm. equipping lots of other people to do this at the coalface. Um, I'm not sure I would have survived um, decades in the work if I'd been at the coalface. Mm. Um, yeah, because it just strikes me that that, the intensity of it mm. must really yeah. be something that, you know, maybe for the first six months, the first year, the first five years, mm. but eventually, I, well, maybe it's just me, but being, I think part of it is being empathetic, isn't mm. it, with the person that mm. you're helping. Mm. And so you'd have to put up some sort of a way that you don't take on all of the stress yeah. or all of that they're going through as well. And you do come across workers who have... Uh, you know, they've committed their whole career into this field. Mm. Um, look, they would acknowledge at times they get pretty burnt out. Mm. They, the, the, the burdens of, of taking that all on can, can weigh heavy. Um, and it can mean that they uh, struggle in their own home life. Um, it's not unknown within mental health circles to, for nurses particularly who work in intensive um, inpatient care to really struggle with home. Mm-hmm. Um right across the spectrum it's, it's actually not an uncommon situation um i've been fortunate to, to to always look and say actually this this needs to be a balance between a commitment to this line of work but ensuring that actually there's also a home to come to home to um mm-hmm. and ensure that home life is as balanced as possible um and ensure that i'm not on call 24 hours a day or that i always feel like i'm res- have to be there mm. um, I learned very early on that actually if I was going to go down that track I we weren't going to sustain as a couple um, because we we're both in very similar work mm. um, that we needed to ensure that actually there was boundaries between work and home um, ensure that there was a place for us to be refreshed and, and upheld and and for us to have a good church life outside of work mm-hmm. even if at times they overlapped but to ensure that we had a top up um, at the end of the day a, a place to that was away from the city particularly we found over the years has been very helpful um and ensuring that actually yeah we we have good home family life mm. and life outside of work mm. even though i remain even today responsible 24 hours a day seven days a week i, I 
in a sense, the work never stops, even though I'm not at work, mm. and my responsibility doesn't stop, even though I'm not at work. Mm. Um, but I've learnt over time to keep the technology at work mm. to ensure that actually, if I'm on call, it's only on for periods of time, not all the time. Um, that I employ good staff actually who are good uh, decision makers in their own right. Mm. So it's not me that's actually the person at the end of the phone every five minutes trying to resolve. Yeah. So again, it's, it's it's learning over time that actually you can't be everything to everyone and ensuring that um, that there is a system in place that actually can cope with what you're actually dealing with. Yeah, that makes uh, both sense. Both on an individual basis, but also as an organisational basis. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. a lot of my role has been in sh- building that organisational capacity so actually it can be sustained. Mm. Mm. Yeah, no, that's good. The reason I ask is that people who are listening may not be involved or have been involved in the same sector as you, but they all resonate with some of the things that you're talking about because, you know, my job as a lawyer, often I'm dealing with people at their points of crisis yes. or, yeah. they, you know, sometimes good crises like we're starting a business, but mm. sometimes really hard times mm. as well. Mm. And it is that how do you keep a bit of separation mm. but i've come to your house to record this and i'm looking out and seeing some green grass yes. and we had to shut the windows because the birds were yeah. such nice chirping but mm. it would have come right through the podcast so mm. i can see that this would have been a sanctuary yes of um quiet yeah. and solitude as yeah. well yeah. yeah and we and we do live out of town and we've done so for um a couple of decades now and we found that actually by doing so driving home you know 20 30 minutes in the car driving out into a rural area Having a life, and again, this is my connection back to the start of the story. Right. Having a rural life, uh, even though we weren't farming, but we could still have sheep and 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 still bale hay, and we can still, um, you know, um, tail lambs and and do all those things, even if it's on a small scale. But it is very different from what my day to day work life in the city is like, um, and the issues or the um, the trauma that you hear um, of what people's lives are like. Yeah. Um, I need to maintain some sanity and all that myself and we found that over the years these are sorts of things have really worked well for us as a couple and as a family that makes sense so all through that period when you're working at stepping stone um you mentioned earlier that you were also studying Mm. was that something that continued on and and what role has education played in your life um it's, it's been a strong, I've been a strong advocate of encouraging both myself and others around me to continue on in their training. Mm-hmm. Um, look, the whole field of mental health um, addictions, there is a real big shortage of workers mm-hmm. generally across the field. Um, uh, and and certainly within my work career, I've because of my position, I've been able to encourage a lot of other staff to, to continue that journey themselves. Um, I'm very strong advocate of lifelong, lifelong learning. Um, Look, you're never too late to actually start that journey, and and I don't think you're ever too old to continue that journey. Um, recently, I've just continued to uh, complete my public health postgrad diploma through the Otago Medical School here in Christchurch, and again, it's helped me open a whole lot of new doors, which which I thought I knew a little bit about, but it's helped me um, continue my journey of understanding, particularly where I'm working now. Um, and, and in the past, work has been able to support me to do my master's degree as well and in, in health management. And, and I think by setting that example f- myself, uh, I've encouraged other staff to do the same. But certainly I would be uh, saying to anybody out there that's uh, thinking of, of a career in this area, there's, there's some really good opportunities now to do training um, at a certificate level even um, and to be reasonably well paid for it um, the government in its pay equity deal done a couple of years ago f- with rest homes actually applied the same um, principle across to mental health services and addiction services so a lot of those 
providers are now able to encourage people to do um, certificate level training and get reasonably good pay rates with that mm. and then the employers have been encouraging staff who are good to carry on and do their social work or nursing or counselling look there's a huge shortfall of work as I said that just before in a sense of of where these things uh, can go as far as a, addressing people's addiction and mental health issues we're, we're hamstrung by the numbers of, of capable people out there who've actually done the training mm-hmm. um, and both at the DHB level and within the NGO sector uh, both of them are, are struggling to find workers capable or willing to step into this area and support others um, so this it's, it's an area that you know that I certainly have encouraged others to do I've done so myself I've um, look, being able to do education is a privilege. I recognise that, but increasingly, there's ways to to enter the sector um, in such a way that you too could become part of it in the future, and have have an ability to address and support people's needs as as they come up. And um, yeah, so it'll be certainly uh, if anybody's interested in that area to uh, to make some you know, go online and find out what they can and can't do, and to see if there's a journey for them and their their life going forward as well. Mm. Yeah, no, that's encouraging because I think it is important, you know, for people who are in one place to look to where they might get mm. to. Mm. And there is these options, isn't there, of oh. doing things part time yep. or study yep. or extracurricular, whatever mm. it is. Yep. Yeah. And I would say that I'm not an I wasn't a natural for this area of work. I, I sometimes wonder how I ever ended up in it. Mm. But a sense of being able to be well skilled and and recognized in those skills um, particularly from an NGO's perspective and, and even from a church-based provider's perspective, actually um, stepping up to the plate and saying, actually, yes, I've done my hard yards of learning as well and training, um, mm. therefore I'm an equal in the room and I, I can participate and, and action change for those individuals because of that perspective. Mm. Um, and a lot of the NGO sectors need workers along those lines who, who are capable of stepping in and and advocating uh, for change and making things happen for the individuals that are in their care. Yeah, mm. yeah, that's good. Mm. So could you just describe your current role and mm-hmm. sort of how you transitioned from what you were doing? Because we spent quite a lot of time on that, but yep. I'm quite keen to understand what the Salvation Army is doing mm. in, in your current role. So why did I leave Stepping Stone Trust? Um, for those of you who are listening, uh, look, this was a post-earthquake period. Um, extremely high demand on service. Mm-hmm. Um, still is. Um, if you're not aware of the Christchurch situation, the mental health need, particularly amongst children and teens, is is really, really high and still is and is expected to be so uh, for many years, if not decades to come. Mm-hmm. Um, by 2014-15, uh, look, we were being asked to do more and more service, um, no more money, um, see more people. Um, there was a real struggle amongst the staff group uh, to maintain uh, that that level of commitment, uh, they were all struggling with their own personal issues, own home life, own houses that were needing repairing, and people moving around a lot. That's what we found at the time. A lot of staff leaving Christchurch or new staff arriving. By 2015, look, I'd had enough myself. I was thinking, actually, I'm tired. Um, I've I don't have the same energy as I was, mm-hmm. um, and it was a sense of actually coming to an end of an era. Um, and so I went to my trust board and said, look enough's enough uh, I need to, need to step away and you know it was a mutual ending and a, and a good time to do so and mm. I'd seen it through some fairly big crisis periods and a lot of difficult post-earthquake years mm. 
um, but acknowledge that that is still going on today and uh, mental health services particularly are, have really, really struggled um, in the last few years even. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had opportunities to step away and think what else was I going to do? Mm-hmm. Uh, how could I continue to use the skills and knowledge that I had? Um, and an opportunity arose within the Salvation Army. They, um, the Salvation Army in Christchurch have uh, had some very long stay uh, hostel operations here um, based in Eddington, uh, Christchurch, and they've been in place since the 1880s, 1890s. Mm. In fact, um, yeah, just over 120 years um, of operation on the same site. And that's been a long-term commitment to men uh, who at the time would have been leaving uh, prison, Eddington Prison, which was based just across the road. Um, and the, uh, the Salvation Army and... Um, the prisons have been long associated with each other. Um, I had the opportunity to come into the director role there, and uh, I should have done more homework, actually, of what the site was like. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I sort of had a vague idea what was going on, but it was a, a real eye-opener when I arrived at this site. Um, and it was a hostel with uh, runs with just under 90 beds, and uh, many men living in the same room, um, two hostels, which were pretty tired. There hadn't been any funding available to ups, up, um, re-equip or bring in new staffing or capability of staffing. It was just surviving, um, and that was all. And it had been like that for many decades. Uh, this was before emergency housing was seen to be something that was of interest to the government. Mm-hmm. Um, and particularly this client group, of uh, the association between prison and, and the hostels had, had continued and it was now in the form of corrections uh, services um, referring people to the site. It's an all-male site, um, and men who are leaving prison uh, relatively recently or have had some time in prison and are still struggling in the community mm-hmm. uh, will use the hostel for um, short stays and uh, and then hopefully move on to independence. Um or move back to their prior life, whatever that might look like. Mm. And um, they, they, yeah, so the hostels were, um, were, in a sense, part of an old school way of doing things. You don't see hostels or large institutions like this within mental health circles these days. Everyone's running from two-bedroom, three-bedroom, four-bedroom houses. Mm. But these were very much a step back in time. Um, facilities that were old and tired, a way of doing things which you know had been similar for a long period of time. Um, people could live there pretty permanently. And in fact, some individuals had been there for 20, 30, 40 years. Mm. And this was their permanent home. Um, so yeah, it, it was a, certainly a, a real change from what I've been involved in. Mm-hmm. And a lot of focus more so around addiction issues um, than I've been used to in the past. But very strong addiction, very strong mental health, and very strong behavioural stuff that has been learnt from their corrections life. Right. Mm. Mm. So some of these people, have, it sounds like they've become almost institutionalized mm. in terms of they've been in prison, they come out, yep. maybe they go back. And yep. and it's really, it, I can imagine it's hard coming out of prison and then looking for a job mm. and somebody, you know, the interview is, well, what have you been yep. doing? And, well, I've been in prison. Mm. Like, it's it's got to be a hard sell. Mm. It took me back to what it was like in the very early days of the of the trust, uh, right. Stepping Zone Trust. Very similar where people had lived, you know, if weeks, months or years within a psych, psychiatric hospital, 
you see very similar things amongst this population group, um, you know, 20 plus years later, who are all struggling again to reintegrate back into community, mm-hmm. um, have been out of out of living in community and have been a, a very strict and controlled environment for days, weeks, months, years, decades, and are carrying a lot of guilt and a lot of past history and trauma um, associated with the reason why they went in, um, and over time have evolved to having significant mental health issues or addiction issues along the way as well. Mm-hmm. So a lot of similarities, but uh, in the way that people act and behave, um, mm. but also different different ways and reasons for being there as well. Mm. Um, currently within um, correction services um, in New Zealand, there's about 10,500 beds uh, within prison around the country, and that's been a significantly growing population over the last five years, um, perhaps over the last 10 years. It has grown quite quickly uh, to the point where there was a quite a crisis probably a year or two ago where there just wasn't enough spaces left anywhere in the country to house everybody. Um, and certainly prison populations had really got to a, a maximum. They thought they were going to hit 11, 12,000 beds. Mm. They haven't gone to that. The, the, certainly the change in government have has encouraged a, 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 a relook at why people are in prison and mm. why can't they be moved out of prison earlier. Perhaps they don't even need to go there in the first place. Um, mm. And so there's been a, quite a shift in thinking about how that should be done. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. So on a day-to-day basis, does it continue with... Um, what you described, uh, like about 100 people mm-hmm. there every day? Yep. So uh, this particular site um, houses about um, uh, 78 people, mm-hmm. um, and then there's another 10 or 12 beds off-site in another location. Okay. Um, we added, uh, so come the change in government, uh, look, uh, Labor's been in power now for two and a half years, somewhere mm-hmm. in there, two, mm-hmm. two, two and a half years. Just before um, the change in uh, government came about, the National Party uh, decided that they wanted to address, increasingly address emergency housing. Um, they didn't want it to be a front page election issue at the time um, and released significant amounts of money, um, probably in 2016, into the sector saying, look, address this issue, we want these people housed immediately, find them a space to live. Mm. Um, The Salvation Army was able to go to the government and say, look, actually we've got these hostels operating. There was only two left, one here in Christchurch and one in Auckland uh, for a similar size, and immediately the government said, yes, we we would like to add those to the pool of of service, but recognised that actually these were specialised sites and particularly focused around emergency housing for men Mm-hmm. Who had had corrections history, um, so it's um, it's these sites are busy twenty four hours a day sites. Um, in nine, uh, 2017, we were able to add um, a family service as well. So we've actually opened a further sixteen properties around the city uh, that has been focused particularly for mum and children. Um, so completely two types of services now. So one the hostel institutional sort of feel mm-hmm. and one a very much a community small house you know two three four bedroom houses particularly for mums and, and kids so those two services don't overlap 
uh, quite different needs, quite different uh, population groups. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's evolved quite quickly over that time as well. So mm. we're probably running with about 130, 140 beds now, yeah. um, and two quite distinct population groups. Mm. Yeah. yeah. On top of that, the the site also has two family stores. So the Salvation Army family stores are their op shops, and that's uh, traditionally been the only reason why these hostels stayed open was that these two particular op shops were associated to the site and they're based also in Addington and they provided the funding that allowed the the hostels to stay open. Mm. So that change in government, the new funding really opened the doors to um, resources. Um, So instead of having just two staff on around the clock, we were able to start... um, Again, um, employing caseworkers, social workers, nurses, um, some counsellors to start looking beyond just a bed and breakfast arrangement, which had been possibly the way it had been in the past, with a little bit of intervention to actually make the intervention or opportunity to address some of the issues much more significant than what we've been able to do in the past. Mm. And so that's been quite a journey over the last couple of years Mm -hmm. just as those resources have become available and staffing have been brought on board um, and there's certainly a greater ability now to help the men to address some of their needs Mm. Um, it's still only three months of time which we've got with them Mm -hmm. um, which never seems to be long enough Mm. Uh, but there's a sense of actually having an opportunity to start looking and saying what are the really important things that are going to help these guys to move into community a lot better Mm -hmm. Um, Recognising that generally amongst the corrections population, about 80% of all um, prisoners who've been in prison end up back in prison again within five years. It's a very high level return rate in New Zealand. And that would probably be similar to other countries around the the world. Mm. Um, But certainly there's a greater awareness of actually trying to address why is it that people end up back in prison Mm. so quickly. And from your observation, having now been in the role for four years or so, um, yeah, I'm sure that there's no easy answer. Otherwise, someone would have come up with it. But yeah. have you got any observations on what might help? Like that, those figures are horrendous, aren't mm, they? Like eighty percent mm. back in mm. prison within five years. Um, have you got any observations there? Certainly, the again, having come from a, a strong mental health background, um, that hasn't. That is very. There's a very high level of mental health and addiction issues mm. right across that population. Mm. It's um, again, the numbers of diagnosed uh, illnesses are, are, are very strong, around the 60-70% mark mm. of those who are within prison will have a diagnosable mental health or addiction issue. Um, there's somewhere around 60-70% to 70% of all population within the prison population, particularly amongst the female population, which are Māori. Um, amongst the male population, it's probably slightly less. It's probably about 50%. But uh, So there's a very strong Māori and Pacific population group that we f- we have at work and that reflects directly the population that you were seeing within prison. Mm-hmm. Um, so the addictions issues, the mental health issues, we see a lot of physical health issues coming through as well. Mm-hmm. Um, men who, who may have left prison but have not gone to the GP to get, get their physical health needs attended to mm-hmm. um, have continued to have you know, issues there that have been un, uh, uh, not addressed for for years mm. and uh, certainly with our nursing team we're, we're spending a lot of time looking at trying to help people f- you know, get glasses to hearing aids get that, that heart issue sorted perhaps the diabetes issue sorted you know cancer issues sorted so the guys are arriving at our back door with with very poor health mm-hmm. um, 
but certainly the the pull back to addictions back to drug use back to gangs back to a sense of having a purpose a life um, an ability to work take those things away from uh, from the men and they they really struggle once they try to come back into community mm. uh, the work issues particularly mm. um, leaves them few options to to find a way to earn money Mm. Um, so they fall back to old habits quite quickly, mm. um, which, which is a guess, real, real shame. Yeah, and I guess mm. that intersects with Pathway a little bit in terms of what they do, right? And mm. providing employment for ex-prisoners yep. or trying to help with yes. that stepping back. Because I interviewed Steve Jukes for mm. the podcast and we talked about that. As, yeah. That's a, a huge thing. It is to, a huge thing. And, to, and corrections, are, 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 I must say, are working very hard around that issue, mm. uh, recognising that if, if the guys have an opportunity to gain employment, whether it's evolving their skills, perhaps getting them over the line as far as drug testing is concerned on mm. the workplace, an opportunity to actually start, even if it's not their occupation of choice, that actually they have a, a chance to actually get back into employment. That is a very big indicator as to how well they'll go mm. once they enter back into community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that makes sense. Well, what we'll do is in the show notes, we'll put some links to what you're doing now mm. as well as Stepping Stone because mm. there might be people interested who want to know more mm. or find out. Oh, definitely. Um, yep. I'm sure there's ways that those initiatives can be mm. supported as well. Mm. So um, that's really good. One of the things that strikes me about everything that you've been talking about in terms of mental health and helping people who are having issues or, you know, helping them develop resiliency and um, overcome issues. And it strikes me that in your job, you've kind of become the director or become the senior person within these organizations. And so you're kind of, you do have a level of control over what's happening. Mm -hmm. But I'd just love to shift gear completely now and talk a little bit about your own diagnosis and sort mm -hmm. of what that's been like and, and what, what that has meant. Because you've seen other people at their most vulnerable. Mm. And I'm just really interested in understanding how you yourself, um, yeah, how, how things are going for you, I guess. Um, so if you don't mind describing a little bit, we're, we're recording this on a Sunday. Mm. And from what I understand, it was last, not last Monday, but the Monday before mm. that you, you got this news. Can you just share a little bit about that? Yep. So just recently, I generally am in very good health. That's, again, been one of those aspects to maintain uh, over the decades I've been involved in these sectors is to ensure that I eat well and sleep, try sleep well, if I can. Mm -hmm. um, Get, get good exercise, ensure that I'm stimulating my mind as far as training and education is concerned. Um, but uh, over the last couple of months, I had increasingly had problems uh, with a area of my tongue and uh, had gone to the dentist uh, indicating that there was a, a sharp tooth that was obviously rubbing on my tongue and causing irritation. Um, the dentist attended to that a couple of times and said, look, actually he didn't think he was making much difference. And I didn't think he was making much difference. And so uh, we went to... Uh, went so was to, it a soreness? Or it was a, a soreness, or, yep. Yeah. And it was sort of like just annoying uh, rather than, than of any great concern. And initially I actually didn't even really look at it. Um, and um, But it was just one of those issues that just kept nagging away there. Mm. Um, I went to my GP and he had a bit of a, a look at it. And by that point he said, look, actually this is... Um, probably needing a bit more of attention mm -hmm. and uh, he wanted me to go to a specialist which is what we did um, Monday week ago and the specialist very quickly uh, was able to diagnose the the item as as a cancer and 
a, a cancer on the side of the tongue and um, his initial um, diagnosis was quickly um, followed up with you know, CT scans and, and, um, and going to going to have the item, uh, area checked um, and they came back by the end of that week and said yes we've got got a cancer we need to address that um, we're going to need to do surgery um, and he was the the surgeon was very quick to say look actually at the same time he wanted to remove um, lymph nodes down the side of my neck as well um, initially he said look if we find anything in, in those areas we're going to get have to get in there pretty quick um, and we still are going fairly quickly because it's actually you know, coming up this week uh, on Thursday, which I'll, I'll have the surgery, and uh, they will they will remove the, the area on my tongue, and they will also remove lymph nodes down the side of my neck. Um, so it's uh, it's a fairly uh, been a fairly traumatic the last couple of weeks mm. um, as we've come to grips with that. Um, for me particularly, um, when you go online, of course you start seeing what happens to people. You've lost part of their tongue, and you and you don't realise in all your journey of life how important some parts of your body really are, mm. and uh, particularly in an industry like myself where speaking is a big part of my day. Um, if it's not to staff, it's to clients. If it's not to clients, it's to referrers. If it's not to referrers, it's to the funders. Um, so speaking is a is a big portion of how I get about my day and how I've earned my keep over the years and how I've been able to influence and impact others. Mm. Um, and certainly that has been a, quite a, a big burden for me to think actually what happens if uh, speaking becomes more difficult, uh, if I'm not able to put forward my ideas as I have been able to in the past, but if I'm not able to command a situation which could be quite life-threatening, uh, and to ensure that people's safety and harm, uh, you know, that people aren't going to be harmed. Look, we don't know, in my day, my day's changed so much that I never know from one moment to the next what's going to happen. Mm. Um, to lose my ability to speak, uh, or even partially lose my ability to speak, was has been quite a big burden for me. Mm -hmm. um, in a sense of capturing this thing quite early, uh, look, it's been there for a few months, Um Overall, and we've been fortunate to be able to jump in and get um, surgery help really quickly. Mm. Uh, one of the things we'd kept in place was was um, private health insurance, and even at times when that's been difficult to pay for, mm -hmm. but it has remained. And um, we we were able to move quite quickly in getting an expert input into the situation. Um, and you know, it's going to take me out of action potentially for a few months. Um, Initially, of course, we all had the worst case scenario that this might have gone somewhere else. It's spread around the body. Um, the initial tests have all come back as it being a negative anywhere else around my body. Um, uh, but it also, you know, those fears of, of knowing what the future will be have mm. been quite a change. And it's interesting, I was um, in a room full of very um, well-organized professionals um, last Thursday in the hospital, you know, surgeons and and. Um, professionals of in, in that area and for the first time ever I felt very powerless you know and yet I've been around DHBs and health professionals all my life mm. in my career and yet now I was the patient mm. and how it felt being on the receiving end of mm. everyone else's um, looking at me and staring and making decisions about my future um, and not having any ability to actually control that mm. uh, so it's been quite a uh, eye-opener but also quite a humbling um, last couple of weeks as we come to grips with this situation 
um, and know what it's like for us as a household and a family and uh, from, from my work life and in a sense of having a place um, within my local church and a sense of of being involved in things that I've just taken for granted over many decades um, mm. and just recognising actually uh, why and what what's happening at the moment to bring this about. Mm. And it's it's felt quite powerless, yes, definitely. Mm. Mm. Yeah, well, that, that's sort of what struck me is that, that it would it must feel quite disempowering to normally you're the one mm. in talking with the health officials mm. about the people who need mm. the help. And now it's flipped, isn't it? And yes. you're the one who needs the help. Yep. So you go to the dentist and then you eventually end up with the specialist. Mm. Um, what what was the state of your heart, or or what was it like when you when that specialist first used the word C, you know, the cancer word? Mm. Like, what did that do to you in your head? I think cancer's become such a big part of community, and, and we're, we've all, yeah, you know, quite rightly so, quite fearful of it. Mm. I probably wasn't as prepared as I should have been about that possibility. <laughs> uh, I still probably thought it wasn't, it was going to be something else. Mm. Um, you know, within 10 minutes of being at the specialist to, for him to start talking along those lines after very quickly looking at what my situation was, um, it didn't, yeah, it was, it was a little bit staggering really. Um, but overwhelming. It must've been kind of surreal. Mm. Like, definitely. It, are you, really talking about this with me mm. <laughs> and, and I think the thing for me is that I'm not a smoker um, I don't drink um, or very little um, those are two high levels uh, of uh, risk factors in this field mm. um, I work with a population group that does drink and smoke a lot and I'm sitting there going why me uh, <laughs> why am I why am I getting this um, uh, other than the fact that I'm a male in 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 my fifties, um, that seemed to be the only reason why perhaps I'm in the in the population group, which probably hits all of us um, at some point. Um, but yeah, it it felt like a injustice in the sense of of why this diagnosis. And for me, when I particularly when I've been so well and healthy and fit, and I look after myself and and um, try and ensure that I do the things that I should be doing, um, mm. and still end up with the big C. Um, being thrown at me and uh, it, I, I think it's something that we've um, as a community we probably need to be talking more about is, is supporting people who this is something that comes up um, because it's certainly striking as, as I've got about the last few weeks the numbers of people that have had this journey um, and perhaps have been under supported or not known where to turn or perhaps haven't had the opportunities to get the answers as quickly as I have um, and have been left in the dark for a long period of time or have got an issue that is nagging at them that they should do something about can I just prompt people to actually step forward and go and find out somebody who can help you mm. uh, and don't sit there thinking oh well it's not gonna it's, it can't be anything you know that lump or that ache or pain that's it's causing you um, discomfort or perhaps bleeding or things that are happening to your body and you think actually it's okay it must be something else mm. um, look go and get it checked go and find somebody actually even if it's at your gp level and say look actually I, i'm not feeling good these things need to be dealt with mm. time is a really important factor i've learnt in this particular field if you leave these too long that's when that's when the diagnosis is going to be a lot more severe mm. um, and i think too for us blokes, um, look, we're not always that keen to go to the doctor. Mm. Uh, look, you need your checks and you need to ensure that things are right um, and don't hold back and think, oh, well, that's going to hurt or, you know, I don't like needles or, you know, he's going to ask me personal questions or she's going to ask me personal questions. Look, 
actually your health is really important. You don't realise how important it is until suddenly it's been whipped away from you or something is changing mm-hmm. um, because it impacts everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, so as blokes, I'd again be encouraging you to step forward and go and actually go and see somebody mm-hmm. and ensure that actually that, that particular issue uh, is being addressed mm-hmm. um, and, and do it with quickly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, if people get nothing else from the podcast, I think that's that will have been a great message mm-hmm. to get across. Because mm-hmm. oh, particularly, you know, like something on your tongue or is a little bit of discomfort, mm-hmm. you know, like, oh, it'll go away, it'll mm-hmm. get better. Mm-hmm. I, I can imagine imagine that that's something that you you do just sort of push mm. it off like yes. don't yeah don't delay right? don't delay no mm. in most cases it will be something that would just go away <laughs> um, in some cases it won't be mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah is there is there things that have sustained you or, or helped you at this time um getting good information quickly mm-hmm. um having the privilege of of getting access to that and, and being able to go uh, to experts very quickly and, and get response back relatively quickly. So we've been fortunate in turning that around mm-hmm. um, and getting some answers in a sense of of a plan and in a, in a sense of actually this is all going to happen next this coming week and yes, mm-hmm. this is likely consequence and yes, you're going to be out of action for many weeks if not months And but there's been a plan mm-hmm. and so a sense of giving you a sense of... Um, uh, it's proactive. Security. Huh? It is proactive. Yeah. 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 So again, recognizing that for many who are on this journey, they don't have that um, assurance so quickly. I recognize that for some, the, the digging and the prognosis is uh, takes a long time coming, mm. um, and perhaps it's not as positive. Um, I've been fortunate that this particular cancer is you know visible. They've been able to look at it um, and and quickly come to a conclusion without having to you know, do other other means or guess perhaps. Mm. Um, certainly for us as a household, it's brought us. Um, you know, we're already a fairly tight um, unit already, um, but it's having a sense of actually keeping everybody informed, mm-hmm. um, ensuring that there's nobody missing out on the loop of information. Um, again, I've been very fortunate having. Um, uh, Glennis, my wife, is, is a strong advocate in the health field herself um, and is very knowledgeable and able to also uh, know people in the right places. Um, but even she's acknowledged how powerless it's felt at times in, mm. this, in this process. Um, but it's uh, also having a sense of um, engagement with uh, my work and a sense of um, keeping them informed, making sure that they are aware of my situation and, and, and getting their support and back up for that as, as Salvation Army as a, as a wider group. Um, mm. Engaging with our local church, um, we've been fortunate to uh, bring them on board pretty quickly um, and to let them in on what's happening um, and get that support of individuals, but also that prayer support, a sense of um, knowing that there was a, a wider power maybe accessing and being part of this journey. Um but having people who are walking the walk with us at this time, um, again, just helps to spread that load in a sense of actually what's coming and hearing others talk about their stories as well. I think there's been a lot of people who have come forward in the last couple of weeks who maybe not have the same thing I've got, um, but have had similar health scares, particularly with cancer. And I think we all have, cancer brings up a whole lot of feelings. I think we've all had people who've we've lost, um, mm. people who have died, people who are struggling with us, diagnosis who 
who um you know a lot further down that journey than i am and uh you know that they're 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 sort of trying to grab at anything that will help them sustain life and and um a lot of people have come forward with their version of events and Mm. and what's happened to them and then this particular surgery has happened or that surgery and again it's just been good to hear that firsthand and not just go online and Mm. see the worst case scenarios um look uh, online uh, where Mr Google or Dr Google is fantastic but actually it, it can create a lot of fear and certainly that's from my own personal journey in the last few weeks it's mm. it, it has created that so it's actually been good to go back to individuals who who've actually been there and and know what it's like mm. it's been very helpful um, yeah and it's it's knowing that actually as we move forward there is a plan there is there is um, things that can be done there are people who are going to do the walk with us um, and mm. gives us a sense of spreading that load and not doing it on our own. Mm. Um, it's made massive, massive difference for us as a house, household. Yeah, it yeah. sounds like the community mm. being there oh, to support yeah. you is, yeah. is key. And that community can come in all sorts of forms. With def- in our particular f- version, the community is our uh, is in our local area and is our um, connected to our local church, and um, that has meant that in in our particular rural area, there is people who we can go to and, and ask for help for mm. some help. Yeah, very yeah. definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's been wonderful to talk with you about your life. And Mm. um, I think it's just really um, special to hear you talking about it right now, Mm. reflecting on how you've gotten here. Mm. And I think um, for anybody listening, it's going to, there's so many messages through it in terms of the work that you've done, Mm. but also the journey that you're on right now and and the attitude and and how you're facing it. So. Um, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate that you could come on the podcast and, yeah. and talk with me. Thanks. No problem at all. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Glenn. As you could probably tell, there were several things that stood out to me. In particular, the importance of checking things out. If you're not certain, go to the doctor and just get it looked at. Until next time. Mm-hmm.